1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Okay, Shao, into these chapters, we are doing 3 Nephi 20-26. through These start taking a little bit different tone from the previous chapters, and uh, they differ a little bit in the sense that, I mean, at least starting with chapter 21, these seem to be, rather than a continuous description of Christ's visit, this is now almost anecdotes or an abridgment, things that Mormon decides to put in here about Christ's teachings. We get this explanation at the end of the this sec of this reading section if, in chapter 26. And it really does a good job in a few verses here of contextualizing everything that we're talking about in these chapters. So in starting in 20, Christ gives them the sacrament again, uh, performs the miracle of producing the bread and the wine without them having to actually give it. And then he goes into a very, Lengthy Isaiah type, Old Testament type discussion about the gathering of Israel. And this seems to be particularly aimed at making the Nephites understand what their role is in the broader plan of the Father. And then he goes on in chapter 21 to basically repeat a lot of the same things that he just did in chapter 20, thereby sort of showing, look, you know, you guys aren't as unique as you thought you were. (laughs) This is everybody's role. The plan the father has for you is actually the plan he has for all of his children in the whole earth. And your record is going to come in the time when a lot of these things are going to be fulfilled. And a lot of this gathering is going to be happening. So I really uh, fascinating discussion about that. A lot of prophecy going on here. You know, it's almost like we we did sort of the the doctrinal teachings of Christ. We did sort of the the acts of Christ, and then now we're kind of getting into the prophecies section, so to speak. Uh, lots of quoting of Old Testament prophets again. This is all very Old Testament style here, um, and not just style, but literal taking from chapters of, of Isaiah and Malachi and giving them to the Nephites. Again, these are the things that Mormon decided to, to include in the record. And it's not everything that Christ taught the people. Going back to the contextualization of all of this stuff we see in chapter 26. And, and this is, uh, for me, was a really good theme to understand as I was reading these previous chapters. So starting in verse eight of chapter 26, Mormon says, and these things have I written, which are a lesser part of the things which he taught the people. And I have written them to the intent that they may be brought again unto this people from the Gentiles, according to the words which Jesus hath spoken. I think in the past I've taken this word lesser to mean um, fewer, like less of the words of Jesus And um, there really was like many, many, many more. Um, But I think lesser here means more in the sense of like lower or like we would say in the context, lower law or higher law. And the reason I think that is because these next verses speak about it in those terms. It says, and when they shall have received this, which is expedient that they should have first, to try their faith, and if it shall so be that they shall believe these things, then shall the greater things be made manifest unto them. And um, this being made manifest seems to be something that happens through an experience that we have with the Holy Ghost about who Christ is and um, our relationship with Him, rather than a record that we're reading out of the scriptures. And it's it's that, that sort of that next um, higher experience that we have with learning from the Holy Ghost that is transcendent to the actual text of the scripture. And if it so be that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. Behold, I was about to write them, all which were engraven upon the plates of Nephi, but the Lord forbade it saying, I will try the faith of my people. And we were kind of talking about this concept of, I will try the faith of my people here. And and um, I kind of want to get your thoughts, if you have any, on what that really means in the context of these chapters that we just read.
1: Yeah, I really like the way that you contextualize that too. And I love starting at the end and then kind of going back to the beginning, especially with how this has been segmented here with the Come Follow Me. Because it really does help us contextualize everything that's going on. And I love that you pulled this out about the lesser. Now, we know that Mormon said that, you know, there's not a hundredth of the things that Christ said that he's been able to write. So I get, you know, exactly what you were talking about there, that lesser just means, you know, fewer of the words of the the many that he'd given. But yeah, in this context, it seems to be that he's saying, listen... There are these really great and powerful truths, and we see that here, right, with the babes opening their mouths, and the babies speaking, and things that are so powerful they couldn't be possibly be written. So obviously there's a message here that they were experiencing, and because they experienced it, the message is clear. So can you. This is here for you. You can experience this exact same stuff yourself. In fact, why don't you try to push yourself into what we're talking about here, And then experience that, you know, but going back to, uh, to faith, you know, we've, we've talked about this quite a bit before, and it was one of the really big transitions in my life when I finally divorced because I had intermarried as though they were one and the same thing. And I didn't know I was doing it, but I had married the ideas of faith with belief as though they were the same thing and kind of learning how to differentiate between faith and belief for me was revolutionary because faith, well, rather, let's start with belief. Belief are axiomatic concepts that you, you, you know, propositions that we believe in that are true, right? So we believe articles
0: that, of faith, so
1: to speak, right? you, something exactly. you can
0: make a statement about,
1: you know what? And that's the irony of the articles of faith. I don't know that Joseph's, you know, if, if he would have later have called it the articles of faith, but it's ironic that we have discussion. articles of faith that all start, we <laughs> believe. And I think that's part of the problem. And yeah. because faith, when we take it back to its fundamental origin, faith is not a belief in axioms or in truth claims or anything like that. Faith is the most fundamental, personal, intimate center of our soul, wherein everything else happens it's 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 the it's the center of that in which we move from so when you ask someone what their faith is you're you're asking something incredibly intimate of them about them expressing like the inner aspects of faith but usually when we say hey you know what faith are you and tell me about your faith usually what we mean is hey what do you believe and so for me when i see christ here saying i will try the faith of my people I don't see him coming on and saying, listen, I'm going to try to see if they believe what I'm saying. I'm going to wait until that innermost sanctum of their heart, like, like is what has been happening here with the Nephites over and over again until this comes and expresses itself. You know, we've talked a lot about in the previous podcast about the possibility of how Christ that, you know, the name of Christ is really just the name of the ultimate manifestation of our humanity. That As we really enter into the conversation of the Beatitudes, that expression of—and it gets into the concept of Jesus Christ being made flesh and what it means for God to be incarnate there and to give us the idea and the example of what it means to be a perfect human being, both sinless and perfect in a way of being, and in following that Beatitude life— and so when we start to manifest that humanity within ourselves in the true way in which uh, we are intended through that beatitude conversation, that's the, that's the opening up of the true center of faith in our heart. That, that's the true faith that we begin to have in God. So when I see, I will try the faith of my people, I don't see him there as some school teacher or some, some kind of person who's like, you know, grading everybody and seeing everything. I see Christ as someone who's opening up an experience for us. And he's bringing us into this experience and he's like, let's experience this together. So I think we get hung up on that word. Try. I will try mm-hmm. as if I'm going to test or if I'm going to, to see if they're yeah. going to be true and faithful, because we have that kind of verbiage and other aspects of our worship. Right. But I see Christ more as opening up the possibilities of experience with us. And if we are willing to come into that conversation with him if we're willing coming, come into that way of being with him, that's the whole point here. And so these chapters, especially the, the, the Old Testament chapters, which, man, we have, we have, I mean, I got so much to talk about with like 22 and 23 and 24. Yeah. But when we finally start getting into these chapters, we're going to see that the Jews had, you know, from the Old Testament really had one way of looking at it and come to find out that's really the way that Christians today look at it. We, we look at Jesus as a Messiah, the same way that. The Jews looked as, as a Messiah, like like we're still waiting for the second coming Jesus to be kind of like what the Jews thought the first coming of Jesus was going to be like, and mm-hmm. the irony is is that Jesus is going to come in who he was, you know. We we learn, you know, going back, and I know we're going to go back to Alma nine when we talked about the glory of God and the attributes of what the glory of God actually are versus the way we like to picture them, and about how that changes the way we view God. But all throughout this text, we're going to have a message of repentance. And typically in our kind of our Mormon culture, that has come to mean, listen, you're sinning, you need to ask for forgiveness, and you've got to change your behavior. And that's how we view repentance. But that's not at all. I mean, that is such a boring construct of what repentance is for me. It's almost just completely just...
0: (sighs) That's just a shadow of the symptom of or the effect of repentance. That's yeah. not the actual thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it, yeah. It's like we're talking about the effect. That's a great way of putting that. So for me, repentance, like what the Bible dictionary says, it's learning to see God in a completely new way. And if I see God in a completely new way, I'm going to necessarily see myself in a completely new way. And if I see myself in a completely new way, I'm necessarily going to see everyone else in a completely new way and the world in a new way. This is the process that Enos went through, Right. He's like, God, mm-hmm. how is this done? And he begins, his mind is open to who and what God is. And then he realizes his sins and he sees himself in a new way. Then he starts praying for his people. Then he expands out to the Lamanites. And so his circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. As he, that's, the, that's the repentance process, right. is learning and really truly seeing God differently. So when we have Jesus Christ here bringing up old messages from the Old Testament, and he's bringing them into the Nephites, he's bringing old, un, old texts... With new understanding, it's like listen. This is what was said. I, I I'm pretty sure that you interpreted it wrong, but let's bring this up again so I can show you the true meaning of this. And unless you truly understand the true meaning of this in the context of everything that I've just shown you, right. everything that I've just taught you, you're not going to understand what I have to say here. Now, reapproach this. Now, I, the, the Jews here don't have, you know, the Nephites here and the people of America, that, for instance, they don't have the words of Malachi. This is brand new for them because, you know, Malachi came several hundred years after Lehi. So, but in this way, we see that the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount literally become the structure and the framework, the fancy word for it is hermeneutic, to how we then interpret the rest of Christ's words. Now the problem is is that when we start to read these words like we're going to there's going to be a propensity for us to be able to try to interpret them through the worldly lens that we have like the Cain narrative that we've talked about right mm-hmm. but we're going to try at least that's what I got notes all here for we're going to try to shift that conversation to read some of these words and kind of show them in a new light by using that beatitude conversation to be able to really bring this out in a new way for us to kind of maybe see this as hopefully more of what Christ was intending on.
0: Well, and a a more consistent message. I mean, one of the whole points that we've been focusing on as we've been going through these chapters, starting with chapter 11 was how it flowed and how it just naturally and organically made sense that the next thing that Christ taught or the next thing that he did really just fit right along in with his bringing the people along into an understanding and an experience of who they were to become and who he is and and experiencing the presence of God. And so after all of that experience of him teaching them his doctrine and then showing them how to be how to live as members of the kingdom of god we now get these chapters and if we if we don't take them in that context then we're missing the whole point of that lesson right like right. we have to we have to bring that with us we have to bring 11 through 19 with us to 20 through 26 And if we don't bring it with us, then we're not really getting the experience of who Christ is and what we're supposed to learn about Christ in these chapters. So I I really like what you said about like try um, in terms of the faith and stuff. I saw a lot of uh, that doctrine of perhaps kind of in that concept. I've heard it said before, and I would have to look up where this comes from. And I I don't necessarily have anything wrong with the with the symbol itself, but I think that it's interpreted in in an inconsistent way. You know, I've heard it said, well, when Christ came the first time, he came as a lamb, and when he's coming the second time, he's coming as a lion. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but (laughs) the idea being that, you know, Christ came humbly, and and everything that we read in the scriptures about him is pertaining to his first coming. But when he comes the second time, he's going to you know, murder everyone and destroy them like a lion would. And it's like, I don't believe in a bipolar Christ. I just don't. Um, So maybe that's offensive to that, um, that mental illness. But my point being, you know, I don't believe that Christ has um, this inconsistent character that we, we don't understand or can't predict um, in terms of, of who he is and who we're supposed to be in any given moment. So,
1: Yeah, you know that idea of a vengeful Christ mixed in with the, you know, the kind of benevolent Christ has really done more damage the, to people's confidence in God than probably any other thing that I've ever been able to find. Because as I've talked with people over the last several years, and I've talked about God with them, and especially a lot of friends who've left the church, and as we've talked with them about their feelings about God and what have you, you know, it's, it's been fascinating t- and sad. You know, I, I use fascinating and just like, I, I just sat there and I'm like, wow, you know, their experience was so different than mine, but I, I can, I can really try to empathize with them and be brought in that conversation yeah. with them Yeah, where they started to realize that this, their view of God was, they could never truly feel like they were ever totally exposed and open to their creator because there was always this other fear of, well, if I ever mess up, he's going to destroy me. Right. Yeah. And it just really throws people for a loop. And I know there's a lot of defense out there about it. I know there's a lot of people who push back on it and say, well, you know, there's two sides to Jesus. And and then they try to like double down on the narrative. But just like you said, Ben, I I just don't see that kind of Christ anymore. I I see something else entirely going on in the same text as has been written. And this isn't to say that God is going to allow all sin. This isn't this isn't coming out to say that, you know, just eat, drink, and be merry, nevertheless, fear God and do whatever you're gonna do, and at last you're gonna be saved. That has nothing to do with that. And I think it's a grave injustice that the LDS community has really straw manned in a lot of ways that conversation because they have really pushed down out of obscurity some some superlatives, just beautiful doctrines and ways of seeing God, that would alleviate so much shame and guilt, and bring them almost into immediate experience with the divine. And so that's kind of what you know it was for me anyway. I, and you know, I know you, talking with you, Ben, the uh, you know the the, exper- the experiences are the same. And really, just trying to put a lot of those conversations to the side and try to experience God in a new way. You know, this is a very much a repentance process. You know, Let's try to view God in a new way and just see what is present. Let's just see what comes out. Let's just do an experiment to see who and what God is and then see what, what becomes present. So for instance, in chapter 20, mm-hmm. we have the, this, you have Jesus now coming in, breaking bread. Now there was no bread or wine. So we have, as you said, we have this new, uh, um, miracle now that Christ just produced bread and wine where there wasn't, where there was none. And now we have this discourse that goes on for chapter 20 and 21 about the Gentiles, which was basically us, right? It's, it's the Gentiles who come in. Um, it talks, you know, we're talking, what, what the caption, captions here to the chapters say are the Americas and the Gentiles come to the Americas, um, the remnant or the Lamanites are persecuted. That's the flavor that we're getting here. But we have phrases like this in chapter 13 of verse 20. And then shall the remnants which shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth be gathered in from the east and from the west and from the south and from the north, and they shall be brought to a knowledge of the Lord their God who hath redeemed them.
0: Mm, Yeah, I love that verse.
1: I love that verse, right? Because now we're talking about a gathering in of, of all of these people who've been scattered, and I love this, to be brought to a knowledge of the Lord their God who redeemed them. Not just that you don't believe in God before, but now you do and you don't know who it is. And now I've given it to you almost kind of like a, kind of like an Ammon talking to Lamoni about the great spirit. Do you believe in the great spirit? And he's like, well, I've heard of it. And so says, well, let me tell you what the great spirit, what I see here in context of everything else is the repentance process that you are brought to a knowledge of the Lord, your God, you're, you're coming mm-hmm. to a knowledge of actually who and what that God is the the true nature of God. And this is one of the things that I think Latter-day Saints, we might be a little bit prideful. Well, we are a lot prideful on this. I'll just go out and write out and say it because, you know, over the last years and I've done this, I'm more guilty than most in this In saying that, you know, to, to people who aren't, who aren't Latter-day Saints and talking about the nature of God. The first thing that I would always lead off on is like a first vision or experiences where God is embodied, you know, King Follett discourse, plan of salvation narratives, that whole thing. And you're bringing up this thing of saying, listen, and for the longest time I I held this view as well, and I've heard it more times than I can count outside of myself, is that we have a corner on the nature of God because we believe that God is embodied, that we are made in his image, and that we will become as he is um, in the eternities, right? That whole plan of salvation narrative. And as I've thought about this for a while, I've come to realize that even though we have a truth claim to having a, a greater understanding to the physical characteristics of God, if you stood every Latter-day Saint shoulder to shoulder and you specifically asked them, what is the true nature of God? You're going to get as many varied answers as you have Latter-day Saints. That, And, and probably you're going to get stories about how well God is embodied. He actually has a physical body. We're made in His image and you're going to have that And so one of the responses I have to this now is I said, you know what? I can tell you that my grandfather was six foot three. I can tell you that he had four toes. I can tell you that I have his blue eyes. I can give you so many characteristics about who and what he was and what his body looked like and about how he walked and his gait and about how I had a hard time keeping up with him when I was five years old because he walked with such long strides that I had to basically run just to catch up with my grandfather. Now, my grandfather had five toes, by the way, but just to go show is that all of the physical characteristics of who and what he was would never tell you the love that he gave me. It would never tell you what it was like to sit on a summer afternoon in a chair with him on my grandfather's farm and drink lemonade and just to hear the crickets and then to have him just say, Shiloh, I'm having a good time right now. And just to know that I was in the presence of one of my favorite people, my Superman. And just to tell you his physical characteristics can never tell you of the love that exists there. And so in a lot of ways, when we talk about God, we talk about his physical characteristics and we lose out on the entire nature. So when I read this verse about being brought into a knowledge of Lord their God, it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much the truth claim about his body. And that's important. I'm not discounting the importance of it. But what I'm saying is that there's a nature of God that we haven't really, truly, really pushed ourselves into as a Latter-day Saint community that really gives us the edge above anybody else outside of our faith tradition that we think it does. And that's where I find that these chapters about truly expressing the nature of God really become important for us today.
0: Yeah, you know, as you were talking about that, I I was thinking about how this ties in to the concept that earlier where we brought up beliefs and faith, right? Because we can say we believe God is such and such, um, you know, that he has a body and and um, were his children, so to speak. But um, that doesn't really get at the faith of the matter, right? And the faith is, more, is something more personal that's rooted in your experience with him. And that experience isn't described simply by um, talking about physical attributes of a person. I was talking with my wife about this the other day And it was kind of along the lines of what you were saying is like, if I have a friend and I want you to get to know my friend, I could spend hours describing everything that I know about how he looks and, and the things we've done together. But you just talking with my friend for like two or three minutes is going to give you an understanding of him far beyond anything I could express in hours of describing who he is. And so this is what we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody not just knowing a set of beliefs or doctrines about God, but actually experiencing, having an experience with him that brings them into what it says here, a knowledge of the Lord their God. And it says, I love this phrase after there. It says, who hath redeemed them. And I like how it's kind of in the past tense because it's almost like they didn't they didn't even know that they had been redeemed. and this repentance process is them coming into an understanding of where they really are and where they stand with God that they really are already you know redeemed of him in the sense that he is there ready to receive them as soon as they come to him. Um, So, yeah, that that verse really is quite profound. I was thinking about this, uh, you know, really the chapter as a whole, but um, starting with verse 12, this seems to be talking in almost like a a historical perspective. Um, But whenever uh, I read Isaiah, we, we did this as a seminary class when I was teaching seminary. We talked about ways that we can better understand Um, what Isaiah is saying and we can gather meaning from it. And two of the things that were were most helpful for me in really seeing um, what I, you know, greater understanding of Isaiah than I had had before were one learning to, and looking for Christ in Isaiah in any way that I could, every, every way that, I could find Christ in what Isaiah was saying um, that was really profound. And then the second thing after I did that was to find myself. Um, how can I find myself in what Isaiah is saying? And so here I really like the concept of, yes, it's it could be speaking historically, but this is also speaking personally. Like what if you personally were going through this process, not just the Gentiles or the house of Israel, right? You were actually going through this process. Um, And that was really, really interesting to see the Lord not talking about just the history of peoples as a whole, but the Lord talking about me and what my experience was actually um, in terms of coming to a knowledge of him who had redeemed me.
1: Yeah. And with that, when I read verse 14, that kind of changes the meaning for me. What I love also about these chapters is, especially 21, 20 and 21, is that you have Jesus Christ saying, the father's telling me to say this, thus saith the father this. So it's a message from the father that Jesus is now delivering. So we have here in 14, and the father hath commanded me that I should give unto you this land for your inheritance. You know, and Every other time I've read that, I think about well, whoever they're talking about. When, but if I make this to me, wow, that that, that changes a lot of this. And I say unto you that if the Gentiles do not repent, after. The blessing which they shall receive after they have been scattered, after they have scattered my people, then shall ye who are remnant of the house of Jacob go forth among them, and ye shall be in the midst of them who shall be many, and ye shall be among them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, and as a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, who if he goeth through the both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. They, thy hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and in all thine enemies shall be cut off. Wow, that sounds pretty violent, right? You know, and so the idea here is originally present. If we're going to read this as the Jews understood this, I mean, this is prime example about how the Jews are seeing a violent God because they're waiting for that, that messianic military God to come in to violently save them from their, from the Roman occupation, right? That's what they're looking for. And in large part, because of scriptures like this. Now, obviously this isn't Isaiah yet. This is Jesus talking to the, to the Nephites. But let's change this. Let's just change this again. And let's just ask ourselves a few questions here in verse 17, where it says thy hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Well, I I wrote here on the margins. What did, what did Christ command them to do to their enemies? Right? Right. So this is the importance of us using the Sermon on the Mount as our hermeneutic to understanding what these scriptures are saying. This is part of what we're talking about whenever we say, listen, we can either use the scriptures to try to define and curtail and relegate away the difficult aspects of the Sermon on the Mount, or we take the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount and we use that as our filter to be able to interpret these scriptures. So now let's go back through here and read this again. When we talk about how he says, and in the day that the Gentiles do not repent after the blessing which they shall receive after they have scattered my people. Okay, so to repent after the Gentiles, if the Gentiles are not going to see me differently than they ever have before. If the Gentiles are not going to see themselves differently than they ever have before, if they're not going to see you as they ever have, have before, after I've brought them into the blessing, that blessedness of being within me, right? And after they've scattered the people around. Then shall ye, who are a remnant of the house of Jacob, go forth among them, and it shall be in the midst of them who shall be many, and ye shall be among them as a lion among the beasts of the forest, and as a young lion among the flocks of the sheep, who if he goeth through both treadeth them down and teareth into pieces, and none can deliver. What is the message that Christ told his disciples to do? You know, let's go back to what President Kimball said about taking the gospel to our enemies, that they are no longer our enemies. Let's go back to Helaman 6, when the Lamanites hunted down, and I love that word, they hunted down the Gadiatin robbers, and they preached the word of God to them, and they bore down with such pure, pure testimony, and they converted them so that they were no longer their enemies. Right? And all of these enemies now, all of the intentions of the enemies are now cut off. We start to see the imagery here of the lion and the beast of the forest and the tearing away not as an overpowering of the physical but of the triumph of the spirit. We begin to see that God is sending forth his missionaries like lions to be able to convert and to be able to bring these gentiles who have rejected after been after so many blessings. It is the consistent gathering and bringing in now we know that when we're going to that we're going to see another scripture here that goes back to the concept of you know it, it goes back to like Jacob 5 and and the olive tree and the burning of the field right because eventually there's going to be a burning eventually we say there's going to come an end of days where everybody all the wicked are, are cut down and and all the wild fruit and the wild branches and everything are burned and all the ashes is you know they're all burned to ash Well, we always forget that we're talking metaphorically here, and we're talking metaphorically in a thousand different ways. I mean, seriously, honestly, do we honestly believe that we're really olive trees? I mean, obviously, this is allegorical, right? And the ash, what was ash used for? Ash was used for a thousand different reasons back then. They didn't let anything go to waste. And one of the primary things that they used ash for was to fertilize the trees. It returned right back to the parent plant. All of that that was burned down and sanctified then was used to nourish the tree again.
0: Ash is also used in soap to clean things.
1: Which we're going to find out ash here again. So there's a fuller soap. Yep. Yep, a fuller soap. So now that we have the symbolism of ash that we're going to read about here we start to realize that we have to start seeing these scriptures in completely different ways. And one of the main things that really helped me in this path was to recognize, and it was after reading Jacob's discourse in second Nephi um, there in chapters six, I think through uh, six through 10, um, maybe seven through 10 when Jacob comes out and, and basically teaches the people, he says, listen, you are so afraid of the Lamanites. You are so afraid of dying. And then he gives, he starts talking about Zion. He starts talking about God. He's like, listen, even God's going to make himself flesh and even God's going to die. Nobody's getting out of this alive. Why are you, basically, why are we so afraid of death? And I find it interesting and curious, even now, the lengths that we go to stay alive in this world, to stay alive in this estate. And that's why I love President Nelson's example so much. And there's two examples. There's the one video of him when he's on an airplane and the engine goes out or something like that. And there was a lady there who was basically like losing her mind. And he said, I was calm. I was absolutely sure that I was going down to my death, that that was it. And I was absolutely calm. And I knew it was going to be okay. I, I was going to die, but I was going to be okay. And th- that kind of way of being does not place emphasis on, On staying in this life, and then a recent interview that he had that I absolutely love, and and I've talked about it before, is he says, you know, whether or not I'm on this side of the veil or I'm on that side, because he turned what just ninety six recently, uh, just amazing. So Mm -hmm. he turns ninety six. He's he's not. He has more years behind him than he has in front of him. Let's just put it that way. So in this particular case, he's like, if I'm on this side of the veil or I'm on that side of the veil, it's like. whatever i'm excited i'm just happy to be doing what i'm doing And you now wendy his wife was there sister nelson was there next to him and she kind of nudges him and she says well we care if you're on this side of the veil right and he's <laughs> like, oh yeah well well i i get that i get that but the whole concept here is is that obviously he has an eternal view where death is not a fear and i've often wondered how is it that we fear death so much how is it that we fear that moment when we move from this estate to the next. And all I can think of is that there is simply a lack of knowledge and a lack of peace that comes from not coming into a unity with God. That we seek to preserve our lives on this side of the veil to such great extents that we end up losing, in a lot of ways, the peace that's there for us from just allowing things to be what they are. So because of that fear, we read into these verses, just like what we read, obviously that this means that God wants us to go out and to kill all of our enemies so that they're not on this side of the veil. You know, it's, it's like, we're going to rend them to pieces and kick them to the other side of the veil so we can stay on this side without them. And I'm like, that just doesn't, when you look at it as an eternal sense, that just doesn't, that just doesn't add up it just is not a very consistent way of looking at it but when we start to realize that god who sees everything his purpose and his work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and the eternal life of man everything is in that context everything that he's doing even this whole lions and sheep's and rendings rending apart and treading down and everything that he's doing is not just for the one side but is for those who are being rent as well Everything is working for their eternal salvation.
0: You know, the verse 18 clearly says that this is about the gathering. He says, I will gather my people together as a man gathereth his sheaves into the floor. That it's about bringing his people in, not um, destroying them, so to speak. Um, You know, and verse 19 goes into more of this sort of Old Testament imagery and symbolism. It reminded me of a verse Uh, in Deuteronomy that is a prophecy about the gathering of Israel. And uh, this is Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17. It says, His glory is like the firstling of his bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth, and they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. I've always taken this verse, and it could be interpreted different ways, but I've always taken this verse as uh, a prophecy about the Latter day missionary work throughout the world. Um, and, you know, at least in our Latter day Saint narrative, we have tens of thousands of missionaries, right? And the majority of them appear to be of the tribe of Ephraim, according to our like I said, according to our, our narrative and our patriarchal blessings, so to speak. And then there are many thousands of them that would be of the tribe of Manasseh, right? So I've always liked this verse in terms of how it's re- referring to uh, the latter-day gathering of, of missionary work. Um, but it, again, going back to sort of the symbols symbolism in this verse, it matches really well with what's going on here in this chapter, um, talking about how all of these things are in the context Again, of the Lord gathering his people, all these different symbols that are used. And so much of the Old Testament is couched in a culture that was a pretty, probably a pretty violent culture, very tribal. And so, so much of that symbolism is used there. Um, this happened with the Nephites as well. So, it kind of makes sense that a lot of those same symbols would be used
1: moving on through chapter 21 I, I and like you said ben there really is a lot of a lot of crossovers because in 21 we carry this theme of the gathering and of the gentiles and being established in the americas and a message for a free people and then it gets into a lot of really interesting words and i want to focus really fast on chapter 21 over in verse 19 and 20 And it says, And it shall come to pass that all the lyings and deceivings and envyings and strifes and priestcrafts and whoredoms shall be done away. For it shall come to pass, saith the Father, that at at that day, whosoever shall not repent and come unto my beloved Son, then will I cut them off from among my people, O house of Israel, and I will execute vengeance and fury upon them, even as upon the heathen, such as they have not heard." But if they will repent and hearken unto my words and harden not their hearts, I will establish my church among them and they shall come in into the covenant and be numbered with the remnant of Jacob for whom I have given this land for their inheritance. Right. So now we have the building of the new Jerusalem and then we have uh, where Christ comes back in to dwell. And and I like the fact that there is the building of the new Jerusalem first, where then, then there's a place for Christ to come in to dwell. So there's a, an interesting... Uh, progression there but we see verses like this where god seemingly comes down and he's like listen i'm going to cut them off from my people and i'm going to execute vengeance and fear upon them the likes of which they've never even imagined right and and these are the scriptures that we we have to 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 wrestle with a little bit to be able to tease out other meanings that are, that sermon on the mount context to be able well how does this even work how, how can we even take this God seriously, who on one point is so nice and caring, but in this point is executing vengeance and fury upon us, right? And so it's not always easy.
0: So yeah, just shadow. you were talking about verse 21 and this phrase at the end says, such as they have not heard. Actually, this kind of made me think of Doctrine and Covenants section 19, where we have this revelation of Christ talking about um, his suffering and the atonement, and telling us that we, if we don't repent, we would have to suffer like he suffered in terms of, and and we wouldn't be able to, to stand it, or we wouldn't understand it. Um, and this all kind of goes back to our discussion about Alma and Alma's experience in repenting. And how he was in all of this anguish and and pain and sorrow, but as soon as he turned to Christ, that all went away. And Christ tells us here if we don't repent, that's the state we're in. If we don't turn to him, then we don't have, we don't experience that, you know, we don't see that. So I just, I see that sort of as another. A uh, way to contextualize this scripture here is simply that without repentance, this is what our experience of God is, is just fury and vengeance, right? And if we continue to refuse to repent, to refuse to change our perspective and an outlook on, on not just ourselves and others, but who God is, then we'll continue to experience ourself and others and God in this way.
1: Yeah, there's a book that I've talked about before, called "The Wrath of God, Nuanced as Divine Con- Nuanced as Divine Consent" by Brad Jersek. and he goes through and he talks about a lot of the same thing, that the the thing that we perceive as the wrath of God, is really just God surrendering and letting the universe be what the universe is and letting reality be what reality is, and it's just the consequence of our own actions. And what that really brings about is exactly what you're talking about that this executing vengeance and fury upon them is not the actions of a god coming after us. It's not this whole God's running after us with a with now he's the one with the pitchfork trying to run us through in worse ways than we have ever experienced. and he's not the devil now trying to create new methods of torture for us to be able to to writhe in pain because we didn't listen to his voice. I mean, how inconsistent is that of a loving parent who is not just kind of reprimanding you to teach you, but now is like executing vengeance and fury on you. Right. It's just, when we put that into the context of a parent, we're like, yeah, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when my children are, are sometimes, <laughs> we sometimes sent to the room as, as you know, if, if they were arguing, I'm like, listen, let's just go to our rooms for a minute. Let's just sit in our room for a second you know, for my kids anyway, being in the bedroom was like the worst thing in the entire world. And it was like weeping, <laughs> wailing and gnashing of teeth. And and they were only in there for like two minutes. And, and the only, and I came in there and I explained to him, I'm like, listen, this is not a punishment. I'm not punishing you. I'm not here doing anything bad to you. All this is, is we're just going to take a break for a minute. Let's breathe. Let's clear ourselves. <sighs> Let's kind of just let the simmer down for a sec and the minute you think that you can come back out here as a normal person, come on out. I'm gonna leave it up to you. Whenever that's ready for you, you come out. But man, for those first few seconds when they like weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, like the worst thing that I could I was like the worst person in the in the in their life. And a lot of ways I see this in that way is as there's just we are then confronted with the reality that we've created for ourselves. And God and God simply allows it. Now the thing is is that in my life I've recognized that The worst place that I've ever been in my life, in fact, multiple times, are the times when God has come to rescue me, when I didn't deserve it, when I wasn't earning it, when I hadn't qualified for it, when I was not even really ready to take him up on it. And sometimes I needed some kickstarts, but that's when God came after me. And so in these moments of like executing vengeance and fury upon them, this isn't simply that people had reached a breaking point where God's like, all right, now I'm really upset with you. And it's like hellfire and fury. I like what you said, Ben. It's that when we distance ourselves from God, we simply see the life that we live in terms of vengeance and fury. And I've begun to see that really in a lot of people's lives who really promote and accept that view of God, also have a lot of things going on in their own personal life, that that's their view of God. That's the relationship that they see of God. And there's a lot of things that have led them to that point. And so for me, when I'm having these discussions with people, I'm beginning to try to look more closely at who they are and the experiences they've had so that when these kind of conversations come up, I'm like, wow, what, what life experience have you had that's led you to that kind of relationship with God? And that's really produced a lot of different fruits for me.
0: You know, again, as you were talking about that, it made me realize that that mindset is is natural, right? That's the natural man, that mindset of a vengeful God. And what do we say? The natural man is an enemy to God because that's the way he views God as his enemy. And I think that this isn't something that is overcome so easily by us just naming it, right? Like um, just because I feel like I I'm realizing this now that, that really when I, whenever I'm unrepentant um, this is actually how I feel. And even though I'm, sort of conscious of the fact now it doesn't make that reality go away when I I am in an unrepentant state and I I, I don't realize it until I've come out of it. it it's, it's literally something that you don't you cannot see your way out of it until you choose to change your perspective. No matter how much you've talked about it on podcasts. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like I, I,
0: I, I'm experiencing this and I'm realizing that like, this really does happen. And, and it's, um, that, that Satan, the accuser is there and he, he, he he uses us for lack of a, a better way of, of couching it just, just, um, in terms of, of how our relationships are with others as well. You know, um, how many people have, have, uh, you know, said, yes, I'm going to love and care and be kind to everybody. And then like the very next day they're swearing at the person that cuts them off in traffic. And it's (laughs) like, (laughs) it's not that their hearts aren't really in the right place and they want to follow Christ and everything. It's that literally that's the natural man. And it blinds you to that, no matter how much you understand it intellectually that's where your heart will go if you don't keep repenting, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, so now we're over 50 minutes, and we have the two best chapters I want to spend the most time
0: Okay, <laughs> let's do it.
1: <laughs> but yeah, that was a perfect setup for what we're doing in here. And I'm like, holy cow, we can spend another two hours on these. Yeah, I okay. mean,
0: this is verses 7 and 8 of chapter 22, right? I love them.
1: Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. So first off, so chapter 22 is comparable to Isaiah 54. So when we're talking about this, this is, you know, Isaiah as lifted kind of out of the King James, it has the King James uh, flavor to it. So when we're going here, I want to go down to verse three, start with verse three. It says, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. You know, this is me bringing the Beatitudes all over again. This whole blessedness of the meek who inherit the earth. We, You know, we start to see these when we really commit the Beatitudes to our scripture study. We literally see them everywhere. They come out everywhere. I mean, it's... You know, I'm a pest control guy. And when I go to sleep, sometimes I just see roaches in my mind because of all the jobs (laughs) that I do. So when I say that the Beatitudes are like roaches and it's like, it's like, it's, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean, it's like, they're everywhere. They're like, they're crawling over the pages. They're everywhere. So good
0: roaches. They're
1: good roaches. (laughs) A really weird scriptural analogy. Don't, don't, you know, nobody don't, don't do that to yourself, but that's how I see it. but here i start to see you know the the people here are inheriting the land there's a lot of theme thematic coming through here a lot of themes coming through here about inheriting our lands of inheritance and as you and i were talking beforehand ben it's like i cannot see this as literal now, if it's literal, great, awesome. But if I'm talking about, if we're talking about the 12 tribes getting their lands of inheritance over in like the land of Israel now, and with all of the millions of people who've been given Ephraim as their birthright, like e- the land of Ephraim is pretty small. We're going to have a city that's more congested than Los Angeles once everybody starts to get their lands of inheritance. I mean, we're all going to get like 2,000 square feet and we're going to have to build something and it's going to have to be a co- complex of like, Ten stories high with just our families, it's going to be crowded. And so, in a lot of ways, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll just let somebody else have my room. I I I, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to migrate. I don't want to move over there. So one of one of two things are going on, and I think both of them are accurate. Number one, I don't have enough information on this subject to be able to really make an intelligent conversation about exactly what this is going to look like. And number two, I'm pretty sure that it's not. Absolute, what it talks about here—that it's far more allegorical and and metaphorical than we want to let on. If it's real, I'm totally okay with that. I I, I just want to live somewhere else. I don't want to move there. I don't want to be, live in the desert there. I mean, I live in the desert already in Bakersfield. I don't need to move to Israel for another desert.
0: <laughs> the literalness of it doesn't doesn't hold much meaning for you personally.
1: <laughs> no, a two thousand year old a fourth what a four thousand year old covenant. I am so grateful that it's going to be fulfilled and I'm grateful that God keeps his covenants, but I really don't want to have land in Israel kind of thing. So yeah, be, be that, whatever that may be, I, I'm, I'm happy to do whatever happens when it needs to happen. I'm just throwing that out there to the universe. And I hope I don't like, I, hope I haven't like sealed my fate on something with saying that, but well, anyway. some of
0: that may be your, your American culture seeping through. I can tell you that, um, you know, uh, as Americans, so to speak, Um, We don't have the same concept of being tied to a more specific piece of land that um, a lot of people, especially in the Middle East, but even anciently had to being tied to a specific piece of land and what it meant for them and their posterity um, after them. And so... Um, yes, this for us is is very symbolic, but it really drove it home for them as the reality of them not, not just being able to live at peace in the land, but being able to have something that they can pass on to their children and future generations that will always be something where they can abide in peace, right? And so... If we, if we look at it in in that way and then bring it out of the literal to the symbolic for us, I I think we're going to find a lot of things in terms of what do we, what is it that we want for our children? What is it that we want for those that we love? And the Lord is saying, I can provide that, right? Like when you make covenants, um you will be able to see all of the, or you'll be able to realize all of the blessings that you want, not just for yourself, but for your children as well. And so anyway, that's sort of bringing it out of that literal, but, but uh, even for the Nephites, this concept of land is, is really important, right? You know, they, they seem to be this isolated people that's constantly being encroached on by the Lamanites, And, um, so they're, they're tied to that land is, is very important to them.
1: Yeah, I I, I guess you're right. It's my Americana that's definitely coming through, (laughs) you know, because I, here in Bakersfield, we have a suburb up here called Oildale where it's, it's kind of the older part of Bakersfield. It's where up, where all of the oil rigs are and a lot of the old, uh, Dustbowl migrants came into Bakersfield originally back in the 1930s and, and what have you, and they moved here. And and so it's just it's more, kind of a rougher part of town. Um, there are some, uh, some neo-Nazis that live up there, which is, kind of makes it kind of an interesting community um, to go up over there. But in a particular way, uh, there's also a few gangs over there that whenever I've gone up there to do services and helping customers, that there's these gangs up there and they fight each other and they shoot each other all the time. And what I have to ask myself is, are you, are you really dying for this piece of land? Like, cause they've, mm-hmm. they've got their like gang territories, like marked off in blocks and like, you don't go across the street and you just stay in your little corner. I'm like, guys, there's, there's better pieces of land to die for. <laughs> like, you don't need to be doing. You don't need to be doing that. And in a lot of ways, that's how I my americano comes out about a lot of this land in Israel, where I'm I'm like, guys, guys, listen. Have you
0: driven across the United States? There's tons <laughs> of land, guys.
1: <laughs> Have you gone like 30 miles one way? I mean, come on. There's an ocean. There's a beautiful Pacific Ocean just right over the, over the hills. So, but I love what you're saying there, Ben, because in verse 13, I really think it does bring everything that you said home. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. And great mm-hmm. shall be the peace of thy children. Now that's something I can get on board with is that when I look into my into my children's eyes and I see into their life and all I want for them is peace, mm-hmm. joy, happiness. I want them to live a flourished life. I want them to live an examined life where they they can at the end of their life say, I've 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 done everything I've wanted to do in this life, and it's it's gonna be well for them. Now, if the Lord came and said, listen, everything that you've done and you've taught them and you've instructed them with, it's been sufficient. They're going to go through and you've given them the tools and they're going to be able to have that. That would be an amazing blessing for me. But for me to be able to say, Hey, <laughs> here's your, uh, here's your little piece of land. I'd be like, ah, can I trade that in for my children's happiness? But, if, <laughs> it, it, but yeah, when this particular scripture brings that, uh, into context, you know. And but going back a few verses, also bringing the beatitudes back into this. In verse eleven, O thou afflicted, tossed with the tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors and lay thy foundations with sapphires, and I will make the windows of agates and thy gates as carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones. You know, I love this. Is you know the second beatitude that we've talked about a lot is mourning. And those blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. But here we have those who are afflicted and tossed in the tempest, and not comforted. There are people who are going through the sorrow of life, who've not entered in to the Beatitudes life. There's people who go through sorrow and mourning because you know, the, it's like Mormon would say the, the wickedness and the pains of a damned soul who can't find happiness in sin. There's that type of mourning. Then there's a the type of mourning in the Beatitudes where you've emptied your ego, you've emptied, you're doing the emptying, you're doing the surrendering, and there's like a loss and you mourn for that, which has been lost. And it's that kind of mourning that you, the blessedness of mourning that you're brought into the presence of God with that, with that comfort. So when I read it here, O thou afflicted toss and tempest and not comforted, that tells me and gives me some clues that maybe there are some people here who are mourning and they're being tormented, but they're not really coming into the presence of God. But he says, behold, though, I will lay the stones with fair colors and lay the foundations with sapphires. I will make the windows and agates and the gates carbuncles and all the borders of pleasant stones. He's literally taking those that are still mourning and they're not even coming into the Beatitudes. He's still there. My work and my glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of men, even for those who are not taking me up on this. And that goes back to the doctrine of perhaps. All of those who are not even entering into this, I'm coming after you. I'm rescuing you. I'm laying the pavement that you're walking on. I can't take it away from you because you're not surrendering it. But here's what I can do. I'll at least try to pave the road in front of you with beautiful, as, as beautiful as I can and as well as I can for you. A lot of this, you're going to have to walk yourself because you're simply not allowing yourself to surrender. But then we come in here and we have the children that are blessed. And in verse 14, And in righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Now, you and I, Ben, talked about this a little bit before. I'd like to get to mm-hmm. more of your thoughts on on this, too. But th- it's fascinating, this righteousness here. This stood out to me because we've we've talked about Section 98 before, about how to deal with conflict. And part of that discussion, at least in part, says that we have to endure revilings and persecutions and attacks at least three times. And then at the third time, if we haven't reviled back, fought back, defended back, or in kind— and we've simply taken our lumps. Then at that point, DNC 98 says, Listen, and if the Lord comes down and specifically says you can fight back, then are you justified in defending yourself? But if you've been commanded and said it's justified to fight back, and if you still take your lumps, and even the fourth time they come against you, then and only then is it counted to you as righteousness. And so when I see here that in righteousness shalt thou be established. Well, for me, what that tells me is that we have someone who's going through the beatitude life of being a peacemaker, who's taken his lump several times. And the Lord is telling him and saying, thou shalt be far from oppression for thou shalt not fear and from terror for it shall not come near thee. Well, this is interesting because oppression for me is very much a matter of perception. What is oppressive for me Mm may not be the same as oppression oppression for you or if someone else someone else may have a very high threshold for oppression where they don't feel it and someone may have a very low threshold for it and this whole thing about terror terror fear that's purely subjective i think about president nelson going back to that plain analogy one woman's losing her mind he's at perfect peace so these cannot mean that once we are in that state of righteousness and established there, that oppression and that fear from terror is not coming near us, that doesn't mean that we're not going to experience hardships. That doesn't mean that people are not going to come against us. It simply means we will have no fear. And in fact, verse 15, the next verse clarifies Yeah, I think
0: anti lehi context here.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Behold, they shall surely gather together against thee, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather against thee shall fall for thy sake. Right? And so, yeah, it's, yeah, of course they're going to come against you. This is the Beatitude, the eighth Beatitude. Of course you're going to be persecuted. But the concept of oppression and terror, you're not going to experience all of those emotions because you're wrapped up in the conversation of God. I'm not going to allow those emotions to come to you. So, we start to, we, in one way, we look at these and think, look, he's going to keep us from physical oppression, he's going to kill all of our enemies. He's going to provide a land that's at peace for our children. He's going to He's going to make jewels all over the roads. And he's going to be there in kindness and he's going to protect us. This falls into the narrative that Jesus is basically going to come back at the end of days, kill all the wicked people, build a righteous city, and then and only then can we go in to practice the Sermon on the Mount. And I've literally heard this thing said by countless Latter-day Saints because we can't wrap our mind around the concept that we are the ones to build the new Jerusalem, and then Christ comes in to fill it. Now, if God gave us the Sermon on the Mount, and if the Sermon on the Mount is only so powerful as to be practiced when He's on the earth killing the enemies and building the city walls to, be, to protect us, then the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most pathetic, weak, and just worthless ethics that exist.
0: Well, yeah. Why even give it? I mean, because if it requires that he come and destroy everyone, then he could just come and do that and then teach us after he comes. Why even give it to us as scripture to teach us? If it's something that we're not even supposed to live until after he has destroyed everybody that's wicked, so so yeah, for for sure, I don't I don't see how it is, you know, the imperative to live the Sermon on the Mount is only in effect after the second coming of Christ. It, it's it's just the opposite. It is in effect in preparation for his second coming, and and I believe that. To me, is the heart of the message of the restoration of the gospel, is that we are called to actually be living this in preparation for the second coming of Christ, and this is has been spoken by uh, prophets many, many times. Um, you know, pretty recently, President Nelson um, has challenged, particularly the youth to do quite a few things in preparation for the second coming that like there are things that were ways we're supposed to be living and things we're supposed to be doing in preparation for that and experiencing that and um these aren't these aren't uh like guilt trip stuff um you know that that's not the experience that i've had with it it's it's all been uh, beatitude type stuff, you know, as soon as you live that you, um, immediately have an experience with it where you, um, are strengthened and brought into more of the presence of God. So, um, anyway, yeah, agree with what you said.
1: Yeah. And continuing, cause that's, that's great stuff. That segues right here into what we're saying with, uh verse 16, because once we talk about how people are going to come against us and persecute us, And the Lord has simply taken away all of our terror and our fear and everything that we don't even look at this as oppression anymore. He says in verse 16, behold, I have created the Smith that bloweth the coals and the fire and bringeth forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the, the waster to destroy. Wow. The waster to destroy the the one that's going to go through and kill all of our enemies, right? No. No, this has all the symbolism to do with the puring and this, you know, creating the smith that blow the coals in the fire and the waster to destroy. This really shows for me all of the imagery of the cherubim and a flaming sword. To, you know, whenever we see these coals, whenever we see a coal put in the mouth, whenever we see these coals come about, we're always talking about purifying and sanctifying. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That Christ is coming and he's like, I'm purifying you. I'm sanctifying you. I am bringing cherubim here to cut away all of that ego, all of that natural man, all of that in which is not me so that you can leave that behind and you can have confidence in who and what you already are. I've said unto you, you are already gods. You just need to act in it and come into this relationship, this blessedness, this uh, unity and one with me. And then he comes in to say this, this last verse in chapter 22 no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Now we, t- we typically take that as now our army is going to be super big and powerful. Their army is going to be super weak, almost kind of like a Zarahemna meets Moroni. Like, like you just yeah. won because your breastplates and your headplates, you have better technology. Right. And he, and M- Mormon or Moroni is like, well, no, it had nothing to do with that. And Zarahemna is like, well, it may have had a, like a little bit to do with that. Right. <laughs> That's not what this is talking about at all. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall revile against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. You know, I have written here in the margins, you know, ideas are bulletproof. There are some things that weapons cannot destroy, right? And so here in the margins I also have, what else is bulletproof? What are the things that true beatitude type Christians have that no weapon can destroy them. Think in your life. Think of your testimony. Can a weapon destroy your testimony? Can a weapon come against you and destroy your confidence and faith and hope in Christ? Can a weapon come in and vanquish you if you have no fear of oppression or terror, if that has all been taken from you? What good are weapons against you anymore? You are completely detached from the fear of this estate and of this life and of this world. And all that is there left for you is just a hope in Christ that just like president Nelson, it doesn't matter if I'm on this side of the veil or that side of the veil. It's, it's living in this infinite present that is just, I'm just at one with God right now. And so he concludes and he says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is in me, saith the Lord. Mm-hmm. Man, when you put it in that context, I want that. That's the kind of stuff I want to live for. I want that kind of state of being. When I wake up in the morning, I want to be in that way of being. Now, currently in my own state, my own discipleship, I'm pretty open with it. I only see God in this way in glimpses. and Enough for me to be able to say, I know that it exists. I know that it's real, but it comes in just like, like blips on a movie screen. And I'm like, what was that? And I almost have to like pause the moment in my, in my mind and like go back into it and just like sit with it for a moment. Because a lot of these times these experiences just come and they go almost just like, just, just like a whisper. And I have to go back to those moments and really just sit with them and and just kind of open it up and be with God in those moments and just say, I experienced this. What was this? And then it's in that contemplative state where things open up for me more fully. But I want to experience that more fully in my life to where those aren't just glimpses, but more of a state of being.
0: Well, that's you crossing the straight and narrow, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. As Jay
0: Golden Kimball said, you know, you're just crossing it. Hey, wait. That was a path back there somewhere.
1: Oh. <laughs> I don't walk the straight and narrow, but I sure as I'll try to cross it as often as I can. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I get it. So,
0: so yes, absolutely beautiful words here, um, the words of Isaiah. And there's, there's really just, um, as Christ says in the next verse, he says, great are the words of Isaiah. There is just incredible depth to these that I think um, these really really warrant a lot of pondering from somebody who, um, you know, if you really want to sit with the scriptures and ponder uh, what the Lord has for you, you know, Isaiah is a, is a pretty good place to go. Um, It can be difficult as well, (laughs) but uh, so chapter 23 um, has probably one of the most humorous incidents in the book of Mormon. Um, because Christ says, Hey, you were supposed to write these things down. Um, did they really happen? And, and did you write them down? And Nephi's like, no, we didn't write them down. <laughs> so I love verse 12. It's like, it came to pass that Nephi remembered that this thing had not been written. <laughs> the And, and, There's several reasons I love this example here, but I just, I love uh, Christ's patient and loving rebuke here, where he's just like, you know, let's get it done. Um, There's not any condemnation. It's just, um, you know, Nephi remembered that this thing had not been written. Uh, There's just, there's a lot between the lines there, and and I I love what it says about the situation, so...
1: Yeah, it really it really is. I imagine Jesus here. I do, I no longer see Jesus as a stoic individual. I no longer see him as someone who is just there in all seriousness and just just absolute like focused. I really see Jesus Christ as a personality that has so many emotions and he's loving and he's kind and he's smiling and he's laughing. And I I very easily can see this moment of him being like, "Hey, I sent Samuel the prophet here to talk to you about a few things and about this resurrection. Did you happen to write those down? And they're like, no, we didn't. He's like, yeah, I, uh, I told you to write those down. I know you did. (laughs) (laughs) I know you didn't. And, and, and having it be like a tongue in cheek moment, I, I can very easily see that in text. And if it's not, it's not, but if it is, I could easily see that. Um, you know, in verse 24 or in chapter 24, this is where Malachi 3 comes in. And Malachi 3 obviously wasn't in their scripture. This came after Lehi and Nephi left Jerusalem. But this also takes in this way that we can use the Sermon on the Mount as a hermeneutic to be able to see what's going on here. Especially where we start in verse 2, where it says, But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And this goes back to the soap and the ash that we were talking about earlier. You know, in this several podcasts ago, back when we were doing Alma nine, back with uh, with Ammonihah, we fell on this verse here in uh, Alma nine twenty six that talked about the glory of God, and we had quite a few things to say about it. But what was fascinating about it is that the glory of God in Alma nine twenty six is defined as grace, equity, truth, patience, mercy, long suffering quick to hear the cries and the sufferings of the people and quick to answer their prayers. That is the glory of God. That's his glory in that he's full of all of these beautiful attributes. Not that he comes as this magnificent being with awesome cloud theatrics and, and a really awesome chorus of angels with some really cool sounding trumpets. That's going to be pretty cool. If that's the way it's all going to shake down, I'm all for it. That's going to be awesome. Let's do it. But I'm far more interested in a deity that has eternal attributes of grace, equity, truth, patience, mercy, long-suffering, and who's quick to hear the cries of his people than I am about a God that puts on a really cool end-of-days performance. I'm much more fascinated with a God who is eternally graceful and eternally loving and kind than I'm about the one that shows a a cool show. So when we talk about who was able to abide the day of his coming and who shall stand when he appeareth, well, he's coming in his glory. Now, how can we possibly say, well, who's going to abide the day of his coming? Well, quite frankly, the Jews didn't. When Jesus came in his glory, when he, because it says in Alma nine, that Jesus, not many days, hence Jesus cometh in his glory. And that's talking about his first, his first birth, his first coming. He's coming in his glory. That's not talking about the second coming. So when he's coming in the second coming in his glory, again, the Jews were looking for that powerful show. They were looking for the big show. They were looking for the, you know, the whole theatrics. They were looking for a military general with a, with a great military strategy to overthrow kind of like, kind of like your, uh, your modern day captain Moroni meets your libertarian Rambo. And (laughs) and who's going to go out there and take care of, take care of everything, take care of Rome. Right but that's not who came who yeah. came was someone who was full of grace and truth and equity and patience and mercy on long suffering. And who was quick to hear the cries of his people. And they couldn't endure that God. They couldn't endure that. That was the God who had been prophesied for 4,000 years. That's him. He doesn't even look like a God. And yet that was the Messiah. That was him for he's like a refiner's fire and a fuller syrup. He literally came to purge and to sanctify and to take all of the ash from the burnt over and from the leftover and from everybody who'd been there. He's there to save everyone. And the Jews are like, but we hate the Romans. And then you have the Christ hanging from the cross who's, yeah, we need to forgive them too. It's just a completely different God than what we've been expecting. It's no wonder we need to repent.
0: You know, this part of Malachi that is uh, so often quoted uh, to discuss tithing, there's there's a whole, whole lot more here to this than we often discuss. Um, but I, I have always liked the imagery at the end of verse 10, it says, "Uh, Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I think this, blessings, and we may have talked about this before, but I'm no longer so much interested in the idea that the Lord answers prayers in a specific way, like, and if we didn't um, say that prayer, that X wouldn't happen. Um, It's less to me about what happens as it is what we perceive happens. And because I think that so much about, the world depends on our perception. And that's why I think repentance um, is is really the focus here. That the Lord um, is always pouring out the windows of heaven as blessings upon us. But only when we are in a state where we are willing, as the sacrament prayers say, to sacrifice and let go of earthly things, we, in sort of a paradoxical way, only then do we can we really see the immense abundance and blessings that are around us. And so, in that moment, we come into that perception. Um, and I don't think it's a matter of a change of objective reality. But it's certainly a matter of the change of subjective reality. And uh, again, what we are perceiving based on our our state of repentance. And so that's what I see here in terms of the blessings of the Lord.
1: Yeah, where hell may... If hell is a place, okay, cool, I'm down. But I mean, I don't want to be there, but I hope nobody (laughs) else is there either, right? But I look at hell is not a place anymore, but as a state of being, that hell is a, is a mental construct made by those who think they belong there. And it's the purpose of Christ in coming to them and saying, listen, where's your accuser? Literally the embodiment of Satan. And they're like, we, no one Lord. And He's like, neither do I condemn thee. Go thy way and sin no more. Which is a perfect segue right in here to when in uh, in verses chapter, here in chapter 24 in verse 5, when it says, And I will come near to you with judgment. Oh, <laughs> sounds scary. Whenever God comes with judgment, that sounds pretty scary. And I will come near to you with judgment and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the false swearers and against those who oppress the hireling and the wages and the widow and the fatherless and turn aside the stranger who fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Well, that, that, sound, that sounds like a pretty violent, vengeful God. And that sounds like a God who's coming after you and is ready to destroy the people who are sorcerers and adulterers and false swearers and oppressors. But then I have to ask myself, when Jesus literally came, and there was literally an adulterer thrown in front of him, and the Jews said, "Master, the law says that we should stone her." Basic and basically, you, you if you are who you say, or you, you said we should stone her. And we have his his famous words, you know, "He without sin cast the first stone." But I love what he says to her woman. Where are thine accusers? Where is Satan here? And she looks around and she says, No, man, Lord, neither do I condemn you, he says. Go thy way and sin no more. You know, it's this powerful moment in recognizing and realizing that coming in judgment is Christ coming to the woman taken in adultery. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to accuse you. I'm, I'm, I'm the person who is your advocate. And we often mistake that it's the advocate to the father, mm-hmm. but it's an advocate with the with. father that the father wants the same thing that Jesus Christ is. He, they both are fighting for us. See, that's the thing is, it's yeah, Christ is not simply, he, he's not going to sit there and let you sit and wallow in your sin. He came to save us from sin. But the thing is, is we have to be able to change the way we view God to recognize that they are our biggest cheerleaders, that they're walking the path and that Christ is literally suffering next to us. That the whole path, we don't walk alone. That this judgment, this coming swift against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, yeah, that sounds really nice for a really righteous, pious person who's lived their whole life and who's never done anything wrong, right? Oh yeah, definitely. We want to definitely make sure that all these sorcerers and the the adulterers and the false words and the press that they get theirs. Man, that is so ego-filled. There's no mercy in that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. See, once we put this into the Beatitudes speak, once we introduce the Beatitudes as though that's the nature of God, and so when you talked earlier about the nature of God, that we, we talk about the attributes of God, and, and I love what you said previously, Ben, about the belief versus the faith there and how we deal with God. That was re- I'm, I'm going to think about that one for a while. But all of our belief systems about who and what God is We've lacked actually having a really substantive faith relationship with him. And when we truly understand the nature of God, we're going to find out that it's the beatitude process of emptying and mourning and being and being brought into this meek position and filled with righteousness and being merciful and being pure in heart and being a peacemaker. That's the true nature of God. That's what it means to be at one with God and be brought into that moment. Because once we see here, for I, and I love verse 6, and that really for me is what brings this whole discussion home. For I, the Lord, I change not. See, the thing is, is for me what that means is not that God's not going to ever change, that He's never going to be okay with sin. He's going to always be there, vengeful, destroy everybody. No. I've always been the same loving, kind, compassionate God who's always seek to reclaim you. And you've always taken this message and turned it on its head. I've never changed. But I'm here to tell you, you need to repent and see me differently. Here's what I've done for you. Here's the tokens in my hands and my feet. Here's the scars that prove who and what I am. The self-sacrificial lamb. The one in revelation that comes back, who's blood drenched and everybody thinks he's blood drenched in the blood of his enemies. He's not, he's blood drenched in his own self-sacrificial blood. That's the God I worship. That's the God I'm still trying to find. And just like you said, Ben, you know, we talk, we talk about this on podcasts, but man, is it harder in the day-to-day life. Just to go out there and to find that kind, merciful God, when everything that I've ever been informed by is this transactional God that is neither truly for me or truly against me, and that is—it's just—it's—it's it's been a rough—it's been a rough road to hoe. It's, it, but it's been a glorious one.
0: Oh, well, and that's—you know—in in terms of why it's difficult, I think it's because that's the God of this world, right? That's what Satan says he is, and he's the accuser. And the God of this world is ever present before us as soon as we are, you know, every minute that we're living our lives, you know, that's that's always there. So that's driven into us so much. Um, and uh, so, I mean, it makes sense that it's a constant struggle as, it, you know, we see in the scriptures examples of the prophets struggling in the spirit, so to speak, right? And I, I see that as that's what's happening. You know, they are... Seeking to overcome that, you know, to turn their perception. It's, it's like this uh, constant effort to, to having to to turn our perception, to repent towards God, away from the world in, in every minute, in every moment. Um, so uh, the even that word turn, you know, that brings us to chapter 25. Um, this iconic chapter. That uh, we we put so much, we so much of um, restoration uh, narrative and even doctrine. Um, it, is tangential to this scripture. I mean, Moroni quotes this many times and in in different ways. Uh, you know, different flavors, different translations. To Joseph Smith when he first sees him, uh, Joseph Smith uses this in his explanation about the proxy work for the dead. I mean, we we talk about this chapter in particular, the 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 last verse. Um, constantly. I mean, it's the very last verse of the Old Testament. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And man, this, there's, it's no wonder that Moroni quoted it in many different ways. And Joseph Smith pulled so much meaning from it, because there really is a ton here, in terms of turning, you know, that's, That evokes repentance to me. And then fathers and children, the uniting of the family of God. Um, We talk about that in terms of sealing, but there's so much more than just like temple sealing going on here. I mean, that is, that is literally not literally. (laughs) That is really just the (laughs) symbolic um, concept that we have for something else entirely that's going on. And we we experience it too symbolically, in my opinion. We really need to experience it more literally um, than we do. Um, I love how uh, that relates to section 98, where it talks about renouncing war and proclaiming peace. And the very next verse, verse says, and seek ye diligently to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers of the children. And the the... Implication there for me, and it's a very strong implication, is that that process of turning, repenting, of the fathers to the or the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children, is the very process by which we bring peace. That repentance, and that uniting of fathers and children, and the realization, as Christ has been constantly going over in these chapters, that all the children everyone in the world is his is a child of God and his efforts are focused on gathering them from the north the south the east to the west everyone
1: yeah that's great stuff i don't have, I don't know how to follow up on that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i I have nothing to add to that on chapter 26 you know we kind of you know, we ended and I, that's why i really love beginning with the end because by the time we get to the end once we come back to these moments we begin to see that god loves us so much and with all of these scriptures that he's given us with with the isaiah with the malachi and with what mormon wrote you know, let's, you know, I'll just reread what we did at the very beginning. And when they shall have received this, which these few verses that we've had, that we've read tonight, and when they shall have received this, which is expedient that they should first to try their faith. if it so be that they shall believe these things, which shall be the greater things, he be, will be made manifest unto them. And if it so be that they will not believe these things, then shall the greater things be withheld from them unto their condemnation. You know, it's, you know the, these greater things, just, just by using the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and applying those to these few chapters completely transformed the nature of how God was speaking to us. And as I've said multiple times, just by using the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes now as my new, as my new lens, that filter by which I interpret the scriptures and I read the rest of the scriptures has completely revolutionized the way that the scriptures speak to me. And so I, I see that very much here, that when I've seen God anew in this method, in this method of being able to use the Sermon on the Mount, oh, it's just, it's filled me with so much more hope and love and compassion. And when I go out, it actually transforms me as a human being. When I go out into society, I, I'm, I know I'm more patient. I know I'm more, I'm more long suffering. Things roll off me easier. You know, when things happen and frustrations happen in life that they happen, it's just my life is transformed because of it. It's it's a true transformation process. And so I can truly, for me, this is a testimony of mine in recognizing that this method of using the sermon and the Beatitudes of, of seeing the rest of Christ's message has truly made me a better person.
0: That's good. <laughs>
1: Oh good. Well, chapter twenty six. So next next time we get together, we are going to finish out with everything else that Christ had to say, and we're going to finish uh, third Nephi, and and get into I think I think we I I don't know if we tackle a little bit of fourth Nephi. I haven't really gone it. I into think check. it
0: does fourth Nephi as well. Does do fourth check, Nephi? But I'm pretty sure it does. Yeah. You know, as I think I've already said, we're doing the rest said, of third Nephi and and fourth Nephi.
1: Okay, as I've already said, I have a bone to pick with Mormon when I get up there to meet him I, about you know, all of this talk, he, fourth Nephi, you know, we have, we finally have a Zion type society (laughs) and we get two pages. (laughs) (laughs) Not even that.
0: Well, I will try the faith of my people,
1: right? (laughs) (laughs) Mormon, my my faith is being, my faith is being tested. So (laughs) until then I'm Shiloh Logan
0: and I'm Ben Peterson.
1: Thank you all for listening.